What is the superpower of designers? And how do you create the conditions for designers to thrive? What global company currently has over 3,000 designers? On today's show of Design Lab, we are going to answer those questions. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this podcast, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Doug Powell. He is an award-winning designer with more than 30 years of experience in a wide range of design disciplines. He is the recipient of the 2014 Distinguished Alumni Award from the Sam Fox School of Design at Washington University in St. Louis and the 2014 Fellow Award from the AIGA Minnesota. Doug is a lecturer, commentator, and thought leader on design issues. He has presented at a wide variety of global conferences, forums, and universities that include Beirut Design Week in Lebanon, Fortune's Brainstorm Design in Singapore, and Yale School of Management. He was on the jury of the 2018 Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Awards. Between 2011 and 2013, Doug served as the national president of the AIGA, which is the Professional Association for Design, the largest and most established design organization in the world. Until the end of 2021, Doug was the vice president of design at IBM, where he helped build one of the largest enterprise design organizations in the industry. Currently, Doug has a new role. He is the VP of Design Practice Management at Expedia Group. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. We create that for you, our listeners, each week. You'll find some cool stuff that we mention on the show, articles that we love, and other interesting tidbits. You can find the newsletter at bit.ly forward slash Design Lab Newsletter or follow us on Twitter at Design Lab Pod. There on top of the account, you will find a link to the newsletter. We really appreciate everyone who has rated us both on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On those platforms, we currently have a 5.0 rating. If you haven't done so already, go on to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Give us five stars. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a comment and a review. We love that. Now, here's my conversation with Doug Powell. Doug Powell, welcome to Design Lab. Don, it is so great to be here with you. I'm such a huge Design Lab fanboy, so this is a big deal for me. Awesome. Well, I'm a Doug Powell uh, fanboy. We last <laughs> met like in person, I think it was back in 2019 in Singapore at this right. Fortune Brainstorm Design Week, and uh, I it, it was so cool to hang out with you back then. So thanks for letting me hang out with you in person. Oh, it's great. It's great. And I remember that. I remember that trip and that, that conference. It was, yeah, it was early in 2019 and it was, I mean, it's so nostalgic now to think back to when we would go to these, how novel that is now <laughs> to actually go to a place where we're all together and we all talk about what we do and we share our ideas and stuff. And we're just, we get to have a drink together or whatever. Yeah. That, that was uh, such a cool conference. I hope we can get back to that soon. Yeah. Well, I want to dive in to your work at IBM. You started there um, back in 2013. So that's right. IBM's a century old company with over 400,000 employees in, 100, in 170 countries. Tell us what you had done at IBM. 
Well, yeah, as you say, IBM is this fascinating company. It's more than a company. I mean, it's really this iconic kind of institutional organization that's just got this global presence. And in the, in the, in the early 2000s, so much was changing with, with technology. I mean, IBM is a technology company and user experience really emerged as this, as, as this real business differentiator in, in the tech world. And come around 2012 and 2013, IBM realized that there was a real opportunity to take a leading role in user, bringing user experience design into the sort of business to business enterprise tech space. At the time that was, that was a, that was a pretty far-fetched idea. User experience design at that point was, was like in retail. Apple was doing it with iPhone and there were, there, there were lots of high profile design stories out there in business, but in the kind of the, the, the wonky IT business to business space that hadn't been done yet. And so I, at the time, IBM's then new CEO, Ginny Rometty really saw an opportunity for IBM to kind of be a leader. And she realized to her credit that a lot of things needed to change in order for IBM to, to get there. And that's when she, she really uh, made a big investment and launched this mission and this program. And that's when I joined the company in 20, uh, in 2013 to really help create a, a culture of design and design thinking at IBM. During your tenure there, you had added over 2000 designers and design leaders to IBM and there's over 50 studios and design workspaces all over the planet. Yeah. And I mean, in some ways, IBM is probably the largest design organization in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you an update on that number as of end of last year, 2021, they were up over 3000 practicing designers what? globally. So yeah, a, a huge organization. When we started the program there in 2013, there were about a hundred, 150 practicing designers kind of scattered all around the company. So one of the big jobs to be done at that point was we need, we need designers. We need designers at a really high level in order to make a, a dent, in order to move the needle in such a big globally scaled company, you need to do things at scale. And so, yeah, we were on a really sharp growth trajectory as far as just building the team. I want to push back a little bit and ask you a question. What's so great about designers and what is their superpower and did it really help IBM? Can you give me some yeah. concrete examples of how it really helped this global company? Yeah, absolutely. The superpower of designers, and you talk about it all the time here with your guests on Design Lab, is understanding the needs of people, right? That's the human centered part of design. And you say that and it's, oh, of course, uh, of every, that's no big deal, but it actually is a big deal. <laughs> and designers know how to do that. And we know how to do that in a, in a methodical way, right? We know how to do that with intent. It's true that any, anyone in a big company like IBM at any moment might be able to understand what the needs of an individual person are, but a designer can do that intentionally and repeatedly and at scale. 
And that's where, that's where we needed to make a difference at IBM. We think about 2013 and, and that era, and there was some interesting things happening in the business and tech space at that time. There were all sorts of emerging technologies, AI and VR were, were just kind of coming into our field of vision at that time cloud-based. So there's just the very beginning of all of this movement of, of data and, and tech from traditional sort of machines onto cloud-based machines. So that was a, that was another, another area, but then there was this, this really interesting demographic shift that was happening among the, the, the working population in the world. And that was that in 2015, the, the demographics of the global workforce shifted to be dominated by the millennial generation. Mm. That was an important shift because the millennial generation is they're digital natives, right? They expect a great user experience. They don't even expect it. It's just, it's just an assumption that anything that they do either in their personal life or in their work life any tool, any digital tool that they use is going to have a great user experience. And if it doesn't, they're not going to use it mm-hmm. and, and they're going to go find something else to use, or they're going to make it themselves. And so that was a really looming kind of tipping point as we were building the program, because you think about IBM, IBM makes uh, technology for people who are doing their jobs, right? It's for the workers in all sorts of different environments from healthcare to, uh, technology to teachers or social workers, you name it, uh, a lot of financial services work at IBM. And, and so we needed to be very aware of that demographic shift, that really sort of fundamental demographic shift. Mm -hmm. And that was really a driver for everything that we were doing at IBM. Mm. Doug, I want to drop this groundbreaking news here. So you have a brand new role. You are no longer at IBM in this new year. You are the VP of design practice management at Expedia Group. So your superpower is that you have been able to create the conditions for designers to thrive. Is that what you're going to be doing at Expedia Group? That's exactly what I'm going to be doing there. And that's, that's why I'm so excited. And first of all, just to then thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I, I had a, just a great run at IBM. I'm so grateful for my years there and, and all of the great work that we were able to do there. And now I've got this new opportunity at this awesome company, Expedia Group. Their mission is to make global travel accessible to everyone everywhere. I mean, that is such a cool idea like Mm -hmm. that. And, and I think about, I think about your sort of thesis for the podcast series here and what you always ask your guests is how can we design uh, a healthy life? And, and so much of living a healthy life happens as outside of the the hospital, the clinic, the doctor's office, it's in our homes and it's in our workspaces. Most of it is outside of that clinical setting. Right. And you think about the, the possibility for travel our leisure life or travel in our business life to, to contribute to a healthier life. That's just such a cool idea. And so Expedia is really positioned and really committed to uh, achieving this mission of, of global travel for everyone through 
design and experience. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, my job now is to, is, is to help them create the conditions for designers. And they've got a great design team in place already. We're going to be growing that team. How can designers really add velocity and power to that mission? That's really the, the job that I have now. And I couldn't be more excited about it. Do you feel that more and more organizations and companies are like a speeder group, like IBM, are seeing design as a differentiator? The smart ones are. Yeah, the smart ones are. But not all. Is it like a common thing now? Like how, yeah, how I think common it, I, is it in, in these like big Fortune 500 companies? No, I think, it's, I think it's common. And what I'm detecting now is that it's also, there's also sort of a trend within a trend here that a lot of companies, a lot of CEOs, a lot of senior business leaders will kind of nod their head and say, oh, I love design. I'm a big, I think design's great. Design a big believer. And they'll kind of give it lip service. And then, and then there's the hard work, right? Then there is the commitment, the investment the the changing the way that the company works and makes decisions and builds their strategy and that's where the rubber hits the road right and that's where if a business leader is not willing to really make those changes and make that commitment and put themselves and their own sort of their own integrity and their own influence as a leader behind that commitment then it's just not gonna, it's just not gonna work. There was actually a great, um, I'm remembering back to the Singapore conference that we were talking about a moment ago, there was a great report that came out at that conference, that McKinsey report from, from that year, 2019 or so. And what was important about that report, it was a, it was the business value of design report and everyone mm -hmm. listening to this should go seek that yeah. out. It's a great report. One of the insights there was that, that a company who want, that wants to achieve the, the power and the differentiation that we're seeing in some companies when they make an investment in design, unless they really make a, a powerful commitment to it, if they're just sort of sprinkling some design on top of an otherwise antiquated business operation, they are not going to see those that return on investment. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if they really lean into it if they really make that commitment then and they really do it right operationally then they're going to see some some really powerful results so that's that's what you know to get back to your question yeah absolutely businesses are seeing this and now it's time now we need to really lean into it you have probably been responsible for creating more design leaders than 99% of people out there in your role at IBM and you're and you're probably going to continue doing that at your new role at new role at Expedia Group why are design leaders important and what is a design leader what's that job description entail yeah i mean the you think about the business leader the ceo and the CEO's sort of immediate circle, their C-suite as we, as they're now. In order for a business to realize the, uh, the possibilities for design and experience to drive their business and to be a differentiator, they need to have design leaders in that circle. 
right? They need to have people who they know, who they trust, who understand how to make great experiences at scale. And they need to position those leaders in the right places in their organization so that they can have that influence, so that they can be involved in those conference, uh, those conversations as early as possible so that they can be influencing business strategy, not, not when it's delivery time, not when it's time to just make it look pretty, but back six or 12 months before when the mm -hmm. company is saying, what are we going to do in the next year? Designers need to be in that conversation. And then once the business decides, yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to make, this is where we're going as a business. Then those design leaders, if they're positioned well, can help that company figure out, all right, here's how we're going to do this with experience and design as the leader. Mm. I want to jump gears and talk about your own personal design journey. How do you go from a graphic designer to being a design leader in business? Like, how did that happen? Well, it's many, many years, first of all, and lots of, it's not by any means a, a, a straight line between starting out as a graphic designer and now working in a big company as an executive design leader. There couldn't be more twists and turns in that, in that road. I, I started out as a working graphic designer and, and the first decade or so of my career was really doing that work. For most of that time, I was a partner in, in a great little, um, design studio in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I lived and worked for many years, along with my ex-wife, Lisa Schwartz and, and business partner through those years. The practice was called, the studio was called Schwartz Powell Design. Lisa actually continues to, to run that practice now and is doing great work with that business now. And we were running that together for many years. And I think back to that time and it was so much about, about just learning how to do the work. And, and just, we were doing a ton of work for a ton of clients. It was really high volume. And I mean, every year we did hundreds of projects and there was something about that rapid way of working and uh, that was super important because it taught how to do the work, how to get stuff done and how to get it out the door and how to deliver it and all of the things that you need to do that week after week, day after day in a small business. And there's a real discipline to that and a real rigor to that, that we were learning how to do in those years. And, and so that was what those, those years were all about. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful for having that experience at that time. This was back in the nineties. So most of what we were doing early on was ink on paper. We were doing like traditional graphic design print old school old school graphic design yeah your design practice was shaped by a life experience that you had your daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and you had actually formed a company called health simple that was later bought up by johnson johnson can you talk about that experience yeah yeah i mean this was 2002 and lisa and i had been running uh, schwartz powell for many many years and having you know, good success with that and the, the wheels were turning and it, it was a good little business. 
And yeah, our daughter, Maya, who was seven years old at the time, uh, just starting third grade was diagnosed with type one diabetes, which is, it's a very intense diagnosis because it is very sudden. Literally she was feeling not well for some period of time, a, a couple of weeks or so. And we took her into the pediatrician and literally on the spot there, we found out that she had type one diabetes. And when, when you get that diagnosis, it's not, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll do some tests and maybe it's type one, maybe it's something else or it's no, there's no other thing that it could be. And so at this very in, in literally a moment, everything changes and you're thrust into this, this world of this really frightening world of numbers and medications and needle pricks and, and blood and, and insulin and your cal- and all of the mathematics of it. And then you're trying to f- work through kind of the trauma of, of this thing happening to your kid and what that's going to mean for her life. And, you know, it's a really intense experience. And I mean, it's literally like that. Yeah. It's, it, it happens in a brief moment at a time and it's a life altering event. Yeah. And, and ultimately once we kind of caught our breath, we, um, you know, we started doing what designers, I think any designer would do. And that is to kind of redesign our life in a way so that we could, so that we could do this so that we could take care of, of a kid with diabetes and hopefully do so in a way that didn't completely rule our, uh, our life and our lifestyle and her life. And so we started tinkering around with just, just some little cheat sheets and little things to help us get through the day. A big part of type one diabetes is around meals because every time someone with type one diabetes, uh, ingests food, the deal with type one is that your pancreas isn't working. It's not generating insulin. And so you need to, um, figure out how much insulin to inject into that person's body in order to do the work of the pancreas. And so there's a lot of mathematics that's tied to the type of food they're eating at a given moment. And so we, we found that just completely, just super confusing. Like Mm -hmm. the first few weeks we were like, oh my God, every meal was just like, like horrifying because we were terrified that we would get it wrong. And all of the numbers, we were constantly looking through these big, thick books full of all the nutritional information for different foods. And what we found was what we needed was like, all right, I'm making my kids lunch that I'm going to put in their lunchbox so that they can go to school. And it's a peanut butter jelly sandwich and some carrots and an apple and some milk. And I need to know, (laughs) I need to know, I don't need to know all the science behind type one diabetes. I just need to know five numbers in that moment. And so that I can do this right and do and get the calculations right. And so we started really just breaking it down to some very simple tools, some analog tools at the beginning, just some little flashcards and refrigerator magnets with bright colors and big, simple numbers and pictures so that little kids, whether they could read or not, they could participate in the meal planning and they could kind of begin to understand the basic concepts of caring for, you know, of, of living with, with diabetes. And 
So that then became a set of products that we released and then we grew that into a business. And, and then, as you say, that was ultimately acquired by one of the J and J divisions. And, and we ended up kind of doing some work with J and J after that. Amazing. I love that you have that just learned so much about your experience with healthcare. And I've heard you say accurately that healthcare is a design desert. Can you talk about how designers can make a difference in healthcare? I think there's so much uh, work to be done. And you know this. This is, this is what drives you and your work as well. But um, no one's going to listen to me, Doug. Or people are going to listen to you. <laughs> I think, I think the, the experience that, that we had in those days and, and weeks and, and years early on living with, with diabetes is a version, a version of that experience is something that almost all of your audience has at some point, mm -hmm. because we all have to encounter the health healthcare system in some way, even, even the healthiest of us <laughs> yeah. have to go into a doctor's office, have to go into a dentist's office, have to deal with the systems and the policies and all of that. What I hope is that designers and non-designers, but I think there's a huge opportunity for designers to pay attention to those, those experiences. And as you're going through it, you are doing user experience research in the moment there, as you are checking in for your doctor's appointment, as you are walking down the hall to that little terrible little room that you go into, and then you wait. And all of these, th all of these moments that they, they seem very, I don't know, kind of normal just because they're the way that things are done. We've, hey, we've normalized bad normalized design healthcare yeah. and we've accepted that. I think to what we're all going through right now with COVID, all of the opportunities, I can't wait in the, ne in the next few years for all of the great academic projects that are kind of going to come out of redesigning the, the COVID experience. Like my wife and I, my wife Liz and I here in, in Austin, where we live, um, we go to, to do a rapid test at the little uh, station kind of down on the corner and we're in our car, we're standing, we're in this long line of cars, like waiting to get tested. And we're sitting there just redesigning the whole system in the moment. It's become our hobby. <laughs> that like, is amazing. Oh, if, all, if only they had little color-coded, you know, markers on our windshield, then they would know if we'd filled out the form yet. All that stuff. That's designer stuff, man. That is, that is like, that is what we do. So pay attention and, and redesign it, make it better. Even, even for your own micro experience, your own individual experience, when you break down that whole health, simple story, that's what we were doing. We were just changing our little life, our little home and family. And, and then, yeah, we discovered that, oh, this actually is, you know, potentially useful for some other people who are going through a similar thing. And that's where the opportunity to grow it into a business came, came in. What's your advice for healthcare organizations and systems to create the conditions for design to thrive? Because like you said before, it's currently a black hole of design. There's a lot of barriers to yeah. that. And I don't want to, I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. I mean, there, there are, 
lots of reasons why there are barriers. Healthcare is a highly regu regulated industry and, and domain and sector. And a lot of that is for good reason. I mean, we need to be careful about the, the medications and the devices and, and the care that, that we are approving and so on. I, I would encourage the leaders in healthcare to be, I think there's a temptation to kind of overcomplicate what can make a difference. And I think what was kind of the, the secret sauce of what we did with Health Simple was how simple it was, <laughs> really. It was just pictures on cards and pictures on refrigerator magnets and pictures on little sticky notes. And it was super simple, right? It was super basic. And yet it, it had the potential to make a big difference for people's lives. So. I think there's a tendency with healthcare to think, oh, we've got to redesign the entire system. We've got to redesign all of these complex devices and machines and medications. And that's going to take decades, right? And that's going to, we're going to have to go through all these approvals. When in fact, just pay attention to that individual walking through your clinic. And how can I make these 10 minutes of that person's life a little bit better? I think that's that, that they're at that level of just basic human experience, basic patient experience. There is a lot to be done. I, I was listening to your episode with Jules Sherman, which is a great episode. And she was talking and I couldn't agree with this more about how nurses are secretly just designers. None of them will know this or self-identify as a designer, but they are designers because they yeah. are on the floor in the clinic or in the ER in your space. And they are the ones who are interacting with the patient all the time. Hmm. And so they get that empathy. They get that, oh, I know what this person needs right now. And I don't have the tools and I don't have the things to, to make them feel better right now. And so what we see with nurses so often is that they'll just make something. They'll make something in the middle, they'll prototype something, they'll hack the system. And that's a design, that's a designerly behavior, right? That's exactly what designers do. I can agree more with you. Nurses are always bootstrapping those hacking solutions and they spend more time with patients than doctors. They understand the experience of patients a lot better than us physicians. When I hear you speaking, I think of one design principle that we can implement in healthcare is trying to design that better experience for a patient. One is never put a patient on a hallway stretcher. Like that just seems so basic, but in emergency departments across the US, including mine, it is a legacy Stay. habit that we've yeah. done is to deal with overcrowding, we put a patient in a hallway. And, and during the pandemic, a lot of times that patient has had COVID. And no patient wants to be on a hallway stretcher ever. Yeah. That should be the design principle. Never put yeah. a patient in a hallway stretcher. And yeah. how do we shape the system around? How do we design the system around that? Yeah, well, you break that down. And it's like, why is that such a bad? It's because there's no dignity in that for that person at that moment. They have been stripped of their humanity in that moment. And so that's the core principle. If you're looking at core principles, yeah. it's like humanity 
and dignity must always be the priority. Mm. Right. So then the, the hallway stretcher becomes sort of one, one version of that, but there are a hundred others, right. Of, of how the dignity of a patient in the healthcare system is, is diminished. Yeah. I have two final questions for you, Doug. You are a major music head. What, what's a song or a group uh, that you've been listening to lately? Oh man, I've been through COVID. I've always had a, a wide range of musical interests and I've kind of had jazz in sort of the corner of my field of vision, but I've never really gotten into it. And through COVID, because I was like locked, locked in, like we all were, I started exploring jazz more and, and I really got into, uh, Blue Note Records, which is the legendary jazz, um, uh, record label from, they're still around and doing great stuff, but they're known most for their kind of mid 20th century jazz recordings of the, the, the legends, like the amazing players and, and composers of that era. And they also have done a great job with their online digital experience, ironically enough. And they've created this great experience for how you can sort of peruse and, and sort through their historic collection and order it. And so I've just been gobbling up all of the old Blue Note releases. Ironically, I'm a graphic designer uh, from way back and the old original Blue Note album covers are some of the most beautiful graphic design ever. It's just, it's all just gorgeous stuff. So I've been geeking out on, on Blue Note recordings from that era, Herbie Hancock and Henny Dorham and God, Freddie Hubbard, just all of these great players from the mid 20th century. That's so cool. We have a newsletter every week, so we're going to drop that into our newsletter when your interview drops. Uh, I, I love that. My final question, I like to ask this to all the guests who come on, how might we design a healthier life? Oh, I, I mentioned this, this earlier, there's so much of living a healthier life is just what we do out in the world. That's where it happens. I, I think we, as, as designers, again, we just need to be kind of be paying attention to all of that, that time that we spend outside of work, uh, again, with my new gig at Expedia group, looking at travel as, as this space for living a healthier life. That's a really cool idea to me. And, and, and then you open that up and that's where the opportunity is for designers is, is in all of that in-between space for us to just create great experiences. I love it. Doug Powell, thank you for being on Design Lab. On Koo, it was such a pleasure. Thanks so much. You can find Doug Powell on Twitter at D-O-G-L-A-S-P-O-W-E-L-L-1 or on LinkedIn or on his personal website, which is D-O-U-G-P-O-W-E-L-L.design. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. You can reach me on Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Lisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. Thank you.